Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for September 2016. I am writer-man in Lincoln's nose, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Sophie Mayer, hyphen, not an icy blonde, however hard I try. And with us as a very special guest this week, it month, is... Alicia Malone, hyphen, driving through LA currently while talking wow. to two different time zones. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, it's, it's a very Marion Crane of you. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I've also got some money in my handbag, but don't tell anyone. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, this, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is the first time we've had uh, sort of the three, three different continents on one show. So uh, yeah, this is, this is exciting. We'll see if the technology holds out. Yeah, fingers crossed. Come on, um, but it it feels appropriate to the the global language of cinema to be mm. ranging so widely. Exactly. Well, um, speaking of global, no, I have nothing there. Um, the uh, <laughs> <laughs> jumping jumping right into the films of this month, the Oliver Stone film Snowden. If there was ever anyone who was going to make the film about Edward Snowden's life. It was Oliver Stone. <laughs> Wait a second. Um, Laura Poitras already made that film. Yeah, exactly. This Much is... better film called Citizen Four. This is true. Thank this you. is true. It's a, it is a fantastic film. Um, you know that Stone couldn't keep away from, from this. You know that he, would, he yeah. would he wouldn't be able to look at someone like Snowden <laughs> and just go, no, nah, I'll leave that. I'll let someone else make that film. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's interesting. I actually like the, uh, that uh, Laura Petros is a film character in the film and uh, because i always see these 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 fictionalized uh tellings being companion pieces to the often superior documentaries and uh, and it almost seems like stone just owns that i really did like this film and i kind of like the fact that so many filmmakers of stone's generation become pale imitations of themselves this far into the career and because stone was so overblown this might be a good thing for him because he's now you know he's now less off the rails than he once was and so he's just sort of appropriately full-on like there's no there's no mistaking what he thinks of Snowden and you know what he thinks we should think yeah I thought it was a pretty restrained film for Oliver Stone I was expecting more hardcore when it comes to the politics we're used to seeing him explore such controversial subjects and this did feel like you know he definitely does think of Snowden as a hero and he wants us all to think that as well but at the same time I think I was expecting more from it particularly from the long run time it felt a little bit slow to me mm. but I thought Joseph Gordon-Levitt did such a great job I mean I wasn't sure about that voice when I first <laughs> heard the trailer but watching it in the film and the moments when they actually switch back to the real Snowden you realize how much he transformed into that character and that was quite amazing to watch yeah i agree that was that was a that was a real transformation almost almost an imitation at times but i think he i think he got the balance right on the whole i think there's there's two sort of strands of films in stone's career on there there's the films uh where he goes after the people he can't stand like dubya and then there's the films where he's sort of worshipping the person that he's making the film about. And with Snowden, it's sort of doubly problematic because Edward Snowden was clearly involved in the film in some way and is still alive and very young and a very active media presence. So avoiding making a hagiography, especially with a documentary like Citizen Four, so fresh in so many people's memory. I mean, it only won like the Oscar 
last year, two years ago. Mm. You know, that, that's a pretty rapid remake or second act. I would love to hear Laura Poitras' take on Melissa Leo's <laughs> performance. Like, to me, Melissa Leo is someone who can literally do no wrong. She is an activist herself. Mm. She, you know, came up the hard way and since Frozen River has just been, like, playing it, you know, a barnstormer. So, it, obviously, there there is a group of people in Hollywood who are on the left, people like Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's also been a campaigner, who want to tell this story. But this was a case for me where I felt like the documentary did it so well mm. and it told the story, you know, Laura Poitras was on site while that story was happening. I wasn't really sure what it added other than, you know, a couple of great performances and yes, the endorsement of Oliver Stone, but I feel like he should have just like given the money to Laura Poitras to make that, to make the film she made. Well, well, I, th- I think what he added was uh, Nick Cage's character, who was completely vital <laughs> to the plot. Not right. <laughs> who was <Emma? laughs> I don't know. I have no idea what that was. That was just weird. That character. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I will say, yeah, watching the scenes that you then recognise from the documentary, it did make me want to watch the documentary again. Mm. And it's funny that Joseph Gordon-Levitt, you know, he was in The Walk, which was kind of a lesser movie than Man on Wire and now he's in Snowden which is lesser than Citizen Four because it's hard to recapture as you said you know the uh the real time happenings of that Mm. documentary but one thing it did make me do was become extremely paranoid so after (laughs) the movie I went home and I put a uh, sticker over my laptop uh, you know, now defunct laptop, but laptop webcam because I was convinced that someone now was going to be watching me. Yeah, I was going to ask if you could wow. take that off because I can't see a thing. At the <laughs> <words>. Never. <laughs> well, Alicia, you've also seen The Magnificent Seven and Twan <laughs> yeah. Fuqua's remake of the Don John Sturgis remake of the Akuru Kurosawa mm-hmm. film. <laughs> What what was this like? Because the trailers just looked made, made it look so strange to me. This sort of copper plated, too cool for school vibe, which I, I just couldn't wrap my head around. <laughs> yeah, no, that was the thing. Was the trailers made it look like a completely different film? The trailers made it look like it was going to be this like fresh, kind of crazy but fun. Not really Magnificent Seven, but that's okay. We're doing a new thing with hip hop music and lots of explosions. And then the film itself was just such a disappointment I didn't think it was that fun at all I know that I may come with my own bias because I love the original two movies um, and I just wish people would watch them instead of seeing a remake but I didn't think that it added anything new to the the story I didn't think it was updated much to reflect the times of today and I just thought at times it felt like a bit of a parody of western films like there are so many moments in this movie that we've seen Time and time again, like, for example, the moment when uh, Denzel Washington walks into the saloon and the piano player stops playing and everyone <laughs> turns to look. Or uh, there's a moment when, uh, you know, it's in the middle of a big action scene and there's a stuntman running through with fire on his back just being like, ah! And I feel like we've seen that in comedies and, and parodies of Western films. So there were moments when I laughed when I shouldn't have laughed. <laughs> Wow. It's kind of interesting that, I mean, the, like, massive rise of the Western Western is fascinating, but the fact that TV is doing it so much better and more originally. So, like, Defiance, then I'm hearing really good things, which I can't believe I'm saying this sentence, but about the HBO remake of Westworld. Oh, yeah. You know, going (laughs) back to 
these stories that are really familiar to us, but are bringing that fresh sensibility and are questioning some of the tropes and are putting a mm. twist on them that, you know, is, is exciting and plausible and it's like, why isn't that translating to the big screen? I know. It just feels like these days a lot of these big movies have been made by a committee rather than one person with a strong voice. So it doesn't feel like it adds anything new. And then you see something like Hell or High Water, which I don't know if you guys have seen, but mm-hmm. it's an indie western. And I thought that you know was so exciting and fresh and fun and interesting to watch, one of the best movies of the year. Um, and here you've got these characters, and in, as you guys know, in Magnificent Seven and Seven Samurai, each of those individual characters were so well established that you understood mm-hmm. each seven and what they brought to the table. Here they all just kind of blend into one. You've got Chris Pratt doing his Chris Pratt thing. You got Denzel Washington being a hero, but then I can't even remember all the other characters. Oh, Vincent D'Onofrio doing a very weird voice. It's bizarre. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, but that's about it. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, everyone just go and watch the original, which is uh, called A Bug's Life. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> But, yeah, films, interesting talking about films with original voices because Sophie, Rachel Lang's debut film, Baden, Baden, uh, which is way, way better than how I'm about to describe it, which is a 20-something yeah. woman on a journey of self-discovery. No, I, you know, the the sort of 20-something hot mess female film is obviously a thing, thanks uh, Lena Dunham. And when I was initially pitched this film and, and reference points with things like Frances Ha, I just thought, oh, not again. Mm. But that's like saying that Jean Dielman is a film about women in a kitchen. You know, yes, it is. But the style of Baden Baden, just to Europeanize the, the pronunciation, is unbelievable. So this is Rachel Lang's first feature, but it's her third film. All three of the films focus on the same central character who's called Anna, played by Salomé Richard, and the same team, the writer-director, DOP and actor, have worked on them together since they were at film school. So they have just created this world. It's incredibly beautiful to look at. Like Sometimes there'll just be a shot of like a giant red warehouse um, against a very blue sky, and it's completely mesmerising. It sounds so boring. And this is, you know, that's like a classic problem with art house cinema, isn't it? It's like, how do you really tell someone how amazing a, a, a Bruno Dumont film is? You're like, oh, just look at the cinematography. But this film is also hilarious. It has the funniest abortion scene ever committed to film. I mean, in a category of like, what, three? And also like just the, the main character who is a hot mess, but she's also brilliant. She's very competent. She refashions a bathroom. She just throws herself in there. And some of the physical comedy is like worthy of the Marx Brothers. You know, you wouldn't think carrying a really heavy bath down the stairs could be that funny, but people at the screening were just were crying with laughter and you just identify with this character and her determination so much. Yeah, also if you've ever spent any time around artists, my apologies, but it has like one of the best parodies of the art world and like asshole artists in it. <laughs> it's a delight and um, for European viewers it's going off on movie. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to see what what Rachel Lang does next. She says her next film is going to be about soldiers in the French Foreign Legion, but it's not going to be Beau Travail. So (laughs) there you go. 
So, Alicia, please tell us, uh, which filmmaker have you picked for our Filmmaker of the Month? My favourite filmmaker of all time, the amazing Alfred Hitchcock. Awesome. Wow. How has no one picked Alfred Hitchcock on notes before? I've been waiting six and a half years for this moment. I'm so happy. <laughs> I was so surprised when you said I could pick anyone and I was like, Hitchcock? And you're like, actually, yeah, we haven't done Hitchcock before. And I was like, yes, because I have loved uh, Hitchcock ever since. I realized that there was a director making movies. I remember my dad, he was a huge uh, fan of classic film. And so he used to teach me all this stuff. And he used to drag me out of bed to watch the late night movie on a Sunday night. And I remember seeing uh, Rear Window when I was really young. Mm. And then from then on, I was just like, I love this guy. And all these movies. <laughs> and now, hang on, what, what's your job, having seen Rear Window when you were really young? <laughs> now I, um, I'm a film reporter and I cover a film for a job. So, uh, so I, I think I've turned out fairly well adjusted, but uh, <laughs> it definitely set me on that film-loving path from an early age. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I, I can relate very much to that origin story as uh, I think – the, the primary reason I'm into film so much is Hitchcock films. You know, as a kid, I, I always had, you know, North by Northwest or Rear Window or To Catch a Thief on, you know, in the VCR ready to go. Mm. And when I think about what is film, what 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 is the purest essence of film, my, my first thought is always the sort of romance of the technicolour of sort of that middle Hitchcock period and spy games and intrigue and wrongfully accused yeah. and banter and high angles and tense editing. And yeah, it was, it was a huge, huge influence on me. Yeah. And just watching recently the uh, documentary Hitchcock Truffaut about the, that famous interview that Francois Truffaut and Alfred Hitchcock did together mm-hmm. and just reminding me of like just the art behind his work, how every single camera shot was meticulously thought out, storyboarded. I mean, he didn't seem like the easiest person to work with. (laughs) A lot of the actors, you know, had to go through hell for him to get exactly the kind of shot that he wanted. But I appreciate the art behind what were essentially quite commercial movies. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah, reading about him did make me wonder if we should just scrap film school altogether and send prospective film directors to learn how to be industrial designers and to to get the technique that he had of being able to draw any shot as it would look through the specific camera lens that he wanted and to create and engineer these very typical or not typical because he only used them a few times but those crane shots that come from very 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 high Mm. and then come down to a tiny detail a a tell a twitching eye a key and the way that he would design the sets movable sets around those and just get all these amazing camera lifts designed so the idea that he was driving film forward as an industrial process and that's part of what really fascinated him as well was something I hadn't appreciated while I was watching the films Mm. and just reading about what those set practices were like and and the way in which he did pre-production is really awe-inspiring he certainly used to um uh, he, he said he found making films boring because he'd already made them in pre-production. He'd worked out every single yeah. shot, its mm. length. He'd already made the film and, and it, production was just a technicality for him. But those, yeah, those shot constructions, I mean, they were so innovative. And I remember, you know, making films we in high school and we didn't know what that, that, that shot he does, uh, the zoom out 
and the track forward that, that he uses in Vertigo, and we just kept calling mm-hmm. it the Hitchcock and just trying to replicate it. And it, but it wasn't just you know that kind of uh, it wasn't just effect. There was real subtext to it as well. You know, I, I learned about yeah. visual metaphor from the birds of prey looming over Norman Bates's shoulder. You know, that's where I learned yeah. that from. Yeah, oh, I love that. And that's like my favorite thing to do, which is probably not my favorite thing of my friends, but I love taking one of my friends who who is not a film person and making them watch Psycho. And then I sit there with them and I'm like, see how his face is half in the light and half in the dark. And that's to show that he has an evil side to him and see how he, he looks like a bird here and there's the birds behind him. And yeah, and my friend's just like, all right, shut up. But <laughs> I get so excited when you delve into the little little details that you might not notice in your first watch, but then once you start reading about it or studying it, you realise how many layers there are and how much he's telling you mm. without telling you that it's just there in the scene. And, and so much of that began, like he started in the silent era and he was so rooted mm-hmm. in the silent era that he was actually really worried about sound coming in because he thought that, you know, once dialogue came in, that cinema would turn into photographs of people talking. And but and you look at those early films, and he's playing with cinematography so much. Like in um, uh, Downhill, the lead character storms out of his parents' home after being called a liar, and he goes to the underground, uh, the tube station, and we just watch him going mournfully down an escalator. And it's such a great visual metaphor, and it was like... Right from the beginning, and in the lodger as well, you know, he was so innovative right from the beginning, and he, and he took all, all the things he learnt in the silent era and, and just continued them right through through sound. I feel like Charlie Chaplin, Hitchcock, did that thing where he combined what he learnt from silent cinema with this great love of music hall and Edwardian theatre. Uh, so famously, there was the one film he never got to make, which was of J.M. Barry's play, Mary Rose, which was a play that had a lot of trick stage contraptions in it. And so when he's thinking of The Lodger and he decides to put that plate glass sheet into the ceiling so it can look as if the character is or the we as the audience can see up through the ceiling to where the lodger is pacing mm. that strikes me as something that comes straight off the edwardian stage and he you know loves um having films that climax at performances so obviously the 39 steps uh is a great mm. example of that with its incorporation of the vaudeville act yeah. mr memory and that sense of these almost kind of theatrical tricks that he's putting in there the films are never theatrical in, in themselves you know like rope he goes out of his way oh, yeah. to make one room a stage play incredibly cinematic to the extent of having sets all the sets were there at the same time and they had to be moved away piece by piece as the camera moved mm. what <laughs> i know it's like way before birdman Alfred <laughs> yeah. Hitchcock did did the yeah. one take kind of look so oh. well and he was always pushing himself and trying different things. And it was interesting to hear, you know, in that interview with Truffaut that he was saying at the towards the end of his career that he was wondering whether he should have been more artistic or tried different risks in terms of being looser and trying improv, improv and, like, trying things on set because he was very much, like you said, getting the shot exactly the way he had planned it. But, um, I mean, he's obviously extremely influential. Even just the other day I saw a black and white horror film called The Eyes of My Mother and that was very Hitchcockian. And the the director said, yeah, he's, he tried to make a film 
similar to Psycho in terms of the feel of it and the uh, violence and obviously the black and white too. Mm. He must be the most referenced director in other people's yeah. films. Like direct references like in Robert Lepage's Confessional, which is about the making of I Confess. Mm. And then indirect but very strong ones like Swoon, which goes back yeah. to the case that Rope was based on. Or, uh, well, I guess obviously like Psycho 98, which bears yeah. some... <laughs> <laughs> or what was it, like Disturbia was kind of like a yep. rear window... Uh, with Shia LaBeouf or something. Yep. Yeah, yep. he's definitely still, to this day, just uh, copied and imitated, but no one did it quite like he did. Voyeurism, I always love, um, how mm. he has a lot of voyeurism in all his movies. Uh-huh. And then with, you know, Rear Window, for example, when you, you feel like you're being just as voyeuristic as the characters because you're watching it all unfold. Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, he was very, very self-aware. And I wonder, you know, how much how much of his films were sort of him being self-critical of the fact that he did take great pleasure. I mean, his whole on-screen persona, you know, the whole Hitchcock thing was about a very, you know, that really gruesome grandfather character or uncle character yeah. who just loves talking about murder and scaring the children. And and, and I, th- I think in... in Certainly in something like uh, Psycho, something like Vertigo, you know, he is Norman Bates, he is Scotty, he is aware that he is subjecting these icy blondes, or who are, Mm. I guess, the the audience, to these horrible manipulations. And, yeah, I wonder how how conscious he was of making films that were about his own obsession. Mm Mm-hmm. I also, I want to pitch a, uh, another reading, which is really influenced by the great Hitchcock uh, critic, Robin Woods, mm. uh, who was so obsessed with Hitchcock that he wrote a book about Hitchcock. Then he, when he came out as gay in late life, he rewrote his book about Hitchcock from this new perspective. That mm. um, Hitchcock also identified with his, his female characters. You know, it's not just Norman Bates, who's half and half. Mm. Um, he had a sort of lifelong terror of and disapproval of the police and authority and I think he put himself into those characters who were being surveilled or controlled like Eve Marie Saint in uh, North by Northwest Mm. uh, or Marion Crane and that's maybe what makes his films so compelling is that he he gives equal regard to those characters certainly for a long time I after Marnie maybe that's less true but um so my favorite hitchcock film is rebecca for that mm. reason like i think mm. he really identifies with the second mrs de winter who never even has a name in the film yeah <laughs> yeah um, and, and with what she goes through and actually max de winter is is barely a character in the film and and that's so powerful yeah i love his uh obviously the the hitchcock cameo as well how he would literally appear in the film and it became I mean, it's now something that you see all the time with people like Stan Lee, but at mm. the time, like, to, to see him just walking past, it became, like, a little fun game. Mm. I mean, that's, I mean, we do, we, we love spotting Hitchcock, and that's always a fun cameo, but it's also, like, that, the fact that he did that was such a huge influence on cinema, because he was arguably the first superstar director. Mm-hmm. You know, he cultivated an Alfred Hitchcock film, partly through the cameos, you know, his name was as big a selling point as the stars. And, you know, his silhouette is iconic. I mean, that that's huge. And, and, and but he, I think he's even a character in the film. We're always aware that we're looking through his eyes, you know, that, that shot in, in Psycho after Marion's death, we move from there 
to the newspaper wrapped around the money. And that's completely unmotivated by a character, unless you consider Hitchcock a character. He's taking us to that and reminding us that it's there. And it's like Brechtian directing, and we love him for it. It's so on the nose, and, and, and there's, a, there's a thrill in that. Yeah, I also love how he would be on the posters or he would appear as like an image to tell you about the film. Mm. Um, I've got a, a Birds poster where he's he's uh, front and centre on the poster and he definitely was like a, a character himself and yeah. I love it. Talking about Rebecca a second ago, and that, w- that was his first Hollywood film. Um, David O'Selzy mm-hmm. brings him out to Hollywood. Um, Hitchcock was initially unhappy with the amount of control Selznick had over over his films, which is interesting because Selznick said he trusted Hitchcock more than any other director. So I'd hate to think of what the other directors were going through. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, and then and then he just he just essentially stayed in America and kept making films. I mean, he was so prolific he managed to make a film called Sabotage after and and a film called Saboteur and two films called The Man Who Knew Too Much. Technically a remake, mm. but they're so different. He could have gotten away with a with another title. He he does stay in Hollywood for his feature film career, but he also made a lot of films for the war effort. He made films like Bon Voyage and Adventure Malgache. Um, probably not pronouncing that correctly. And you know th- these were propaganda films to help the war effort. He but he also made detailed notes about the edit for a film about uh, the the Holocaust or the documentary footage that had been shot. Uh, when they came across the concentration camps, um, they didn't release the film at the time for very, lots and lots of reasons. One of which was they were trying to sort of normalise peace with Germany, and this was viewed by being possibly antithetical uh, or antagonistic. But it was released. This film was released in 2014, and I, I saw it on the big screen a couple of years ago, and and it was extraordinary. And, and there was a real empathy in the way he put the film together. And, you know, he wasn't this distant, cold figure. He, he very clearly cared about what was happening in the war and wanted to do his part to sort of help the Allies. Yeah, and it, I mean, that also came through one of his long-term relationships in the film world. And for all that people have, you know, we, there's lots of negative or questionable stories about Hitchcock. Mm. So many people were incredibly loyal to him and worked with him time after time. So it was Sidney Bernstein, the producer, who brought Hitchcock in to work on that um, army photography footage. But, you know, he worked with, for example, Saul Bass, the title designer, mm. On, mm. on so many films and many actors stayed loyal to him and wanted to work with him again and again. So... I don't know, maybe I'm harping on this, but that idea of sort of is almost more like a theatre repertory company than the way that we think of, of, of film studios operating. And certainly there was some friction between the way that Hitchcock had worked in Britain very directly with producers like Michael Balkan or Alexander Corder, and then the way that Selznick and uh, Paramount expected to have a say on who could star in his films, how they were budgeted and how they would be shot. Mm. Yeah. And I love the way, um, like, these days, I think that story is so common. The producer and having so much to say and and the, the films being made by marketing people. Mm. Uh, but he was he was such a great auteur and, and you really felt his presence on every film. And I love the way he worked with the same people. I mean, probably not for poor Tippi Hedren, but um, <laughs> the, I loved, obviously, the music, Bernard Herrmann's scores. Oh, yeah. Uh, particularly for Psycho. That was just 
that that score. I, I went last year or the year before to the Hollywood Bowl where they played the music of Hitchcock and they had a um, orchestra do a live version of the Psycho theme uh, and it was so incredible and, and powerful and still gets you. Wow. Every time. I, I, I actually, this is a really weird personal revelation, but when, I, when I'm in an ATM and I type in my, uh, my, my pin, I actually <laughs> do it to the psycho score and I don't know why that dun, 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 dun. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but speaking of... That's definitely the weird thi- weirdest thing that has ever been said on this podcast. <laughs> oh, should I, ed- should I edit it out? I'm not sure. No, no, um, I love it. <laughs> no, it's great. He's his greatest collaborator had to be Alma Revel, his wife, who was an assistant director, a script writer, an editor. She was so important to him. Very patient as well. Yes. (laughs) When when he accepted his AFI Lifetime Achievement Award, he thanked four people, uh, and all of of them were Alma Revel. And he said if it wasn't for her, he would still be there that night. He'd just be one of the slow-moving waiters. (laughs) I love that. And he saw... You know, you know, movies based on his life and documentaries based on his life and she just seemed like such a great calming presence to have yeah. her around and definitely someone who was really important in his career as much as his, as his personal life. She seems to have been, you know, the the model or paradigmatic, in a sense, like script supervisor or story editor. He said that she would always tamp down his excesses. So a story had to meet with Alma's approval for it to get made. Um, She was like his first viewer in a lot of ways, which is really really fascinating. There was another critic who was incredibly important to him, who's less talked about, which was Caroline Lejeune, who was the first professional film critic in Britain. And she saw the potential of this young whippersnapper making, for actually when he was just doing art direction and title designs, called Alfred Hitchcock. And she followed his career, even when he left to go to the US and in fact he offered to bring her and her son out to the US during the Second World War and when she said no she couldn't she had to stay he would send her a case of champagne every Christmas but she lost patience with Hitchcock with Psycho and in fact that film and then Peeping Tom were the end of her career so I'm really fascinated with the story of Caroline Lejeune and and Hitchcock they stayed friends after Psycho but I think it is true that his work takes a darker turn after that point what do you think yeah i could i can see that for sure well he certainly follows the way that society is going and 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 cinema is going and and like with psycho you know it's the proto slasher film uh we don't get modern horror without psycho and Mm -hmm. and there's something really weird about seeing him i mean you know because the hitchcock in my head is the one of to catch a thief who has to cut a, keep cutting away from Cary Grant and Grace Kelly kissing because there was a, <laughs> the Hayes Code said you couldn't show it for more than X number of seconds, so he keeps cutting away and cutting back. And then watching something like Frenzy, which is full of nudity, and there are some swear words in there, and it's and and I'm almost bothered by the permissive Hitchcock who who doesn't have to cleverly work his way around limitations. But he certainly he certainly follows what society and what film is. I mean, this is a guy who... This is the most extraordinary thing I hadn't really thought of until preparing for the show, which is that he started in the silent era. Um, so when, when he began... Like, yeah. His career was ha- over half a century long. When he began, his contemporaries were 
Eisenstein and Bunuel and the pioneers of cinema. When he made his last film, his contemporaries were Scorsese and Spielberg and all the people who are still making mm. films today. It's, yeah. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Yeah, he was, yeah six, six decades of filmmaking and he was born in 1899. Mm. And, you know, he started making films just after the First World War and carried on until, you know, America was was in Vietnam. So his work really does span a century, and that's part of why his work for the war effort is so important, because people often talk about Hitchcock being a very apolitical filmmaker. Mm. But his it definitely mirrors the growth of, like, speaking of Edward Snowden, surveillance and a growing cynicism that people had about whether the government were really, or the, the police were really on their side. So going back to something like the 39 Steps, there's a slightly comic sense that the police who come to arrest Robert Donat are really pretending to be the police. Mm-hmm. But then uh, the further his work goes on and you start having espionage narratives, um, including narratives that you know, draw parallels between Russian and American double agents. This increasing cynicism of the 20th century about our governments and what they're what they're getting up to is really informing his work, mm. uh, and that particularly that block of sort of Cold War paranoia films that he makes. I think we mentioned Frenzy before, mm. um, but I also love Family Plot, which I know <laughs> some people don't enjoy, but. I, I, something about that movie is kind of ridiculous, but really fun at the same time. I just like how it's, you know, much more of comedy than you would expect. And Bruce Dern is in there. I just, I, I think I have a, a love of Hitchcock and his entire filmography. The, the good films and the not so good films, but mm. um, Family Plot is one that I <laughs> return to quite often. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I only just saw it for the first time the other day. That had been a big, a big blind spot <laughs> what for me. Did you think? I, I really enjoyed it way more than I thought I was going to. Um, oh, good, <laughs> good. Um, it is crazy to think of him working. You know, Bruce Stern has a tiny role in Marnie, and there yeah. he is. In- not. So all those generations of actors as well, like going back, he starts with these kind of silent cinema stars who come from the stage. And by the end, he's thinking about, you know, Jack Nicholson was up for Bruce Dern's role. Like, that's amazing to think about as well, yeah. how many generations of actors he influenced. And, and so many of them loved loved working with him as well. Not all of them, it should be said. Mm. Like, I feel like <laughs> Tiffy Hedren's objections have to be put on the table here. Yep. Oh, yeah, for sure. I was... Uh, lucky enough to do a show was it last year or year before talking about Hitchcock and we had three Hitchcock blondes call in to chat we had you know Kim Novak had Eva Marie Saint who both had (gasps) beautiful things to say about Hitchcock and I couldn't believe I was talking to them and then we talked to Tippi Hedren and she was she was really lovely of course but you can tell that I mean she went through some really hard times with him and was pushed to the limits and really uh, suffered quite a lot and she kind of mentioned of like, well, you know, I'll, I'll keep it nice here, but if you ever want to talk about the real Hitchcock, then, um, you know, I'll I'll tell you off off camera kind of thing. So, yeah, oh it's, it's rough what she went through. Please tell me you've taken her up on that offer. <laughs> I haven't yet, but I, I want to. I mean, I, I tried to follow it up and then didn't quite work out. Um, but I did donate to her Animal Sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Um, which she's very passionate about. Mm. Um, there's there's one thing I wanted to 
to talk about, which is um, like, I mean, there are a million things I wanted to talk about. And if, <laughs> if we kept going for a year, I don't think I'd cover everything. <laughs> yeah. But there's something that, that really struck a chord with me about something is something he does. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about his, his shot construction and, and his amazing use of sound, you know, he goes noisy with psycho and silent with torn curtain and they both have the same effect and it's, it's such a testament to him, but there's something he does that doesn't get talked about as much. And it's the physicality of space. You know, when I think of the cornfield scene in North by Northwest or, uh, mm. or, or the way he uses Bodega Bay and the birds, geography is so important and there's sort of a two dimensional quality to even the best uh, films and the best filmmakers, but there's a way in which in films people are either in a space or they're out of a space, and in real life it's it's a scale. People are closer, 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 further away, further away, further away, and and Hitchcock really there's something profound about that, and Hitchcock really plays into that 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 physicality is is a scale, and mm, yeah, and, mm, yeah, it's 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 a difficult. It's sort of like a, an undulating Venn diagram, and it's it's very hard to sort of articulate that feeling. But it, it's it's something that's quite innate, and 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 he does it so well. What makes that even more amazing is he was often shooting a combination of on the back lot at Paramount and on location. So mm. one scene could start with a painted backdrop on ground glass have some shot on location have something shot on an interior set have something shot with that he would have special props made to play games with scale like the giant prop telephone and dial m for murder that looks like a forced perspective shot so it go that skill of of drawing and imagining three-dimensional space and why perhaps he couldn't improvise maybe it's what gives it that that three-dimensionality is that he's seeing it all in his mind beforehand and then working out okay how are we going to make this the most convincing and sometimes the most convincing way is to fake it Mm. yeah i remember learning about perspective on on camera and and the forced perspective in particular from hitchcock movies and trying to figure out how he did various shots and then reading about it in books and and all the different ways that he used uh, perspective to talk about again you know I think I feel like he does all these tricks all these uh, camera tricks and and set tricks it all of course to add to the subtext of the movie and and how it makes you feel without even realizing what he does but that north by northwest shot and and also even a shot like the birds where you have the birds you know looking down over the mm. town suddenly you're mm. you know from the perspective of the bird uh, it's so interesting the way he he changes perspective and then he does the forced perspective and uses space, like you say. There's so much in his films. I do feel like we could go on all day about it and you could study his movies. Yeah, it could be like your film school could just be studying Hitchcock. And, and even and even at most of my therapy, I think, is going to come back to Hitchcock because there's, <laughs> because there's something about, like, the, the whole idea that reality isn't what it seems comes back to him. Like, mm-hmm. the lady vanishes, everyone on the on the train yeah. denying they've seen her. North by Northwest, when he goes back to the house with the police uh, and his lawyer and his mother, even though we know for a fact that he's telling the truth, Hitchcock is yeah. so convincing at making us question what we know. I, I, I doubt reality. And, and I think most of my problems can probably be traced back to these films. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's so, such paranoia in there. And, um, and then I think of, like, moments which seem almost like nightmares or, 
like true horror, just little shots like in Rear Window when you suddenly with the binoculars see the guy looking back at you or Strangers on a Train, which I love, mm. you know, the scene with tennis and the person looking straight ahead while everyone else is watching the tennis. Moments like that burn into my brain forever and something that I, I would be terrified to see in real life. Yeah. Or the, or the bun in Vertigo. That spiral, I mean, it is, it's a funny thing to say uh, compared to all those murders and stuff, but everything that that hairdo implies, but also the way that he had Sorbas design title credits that pick up on that spiral, and it is like this kind of spiral you drown in of the Hitchcock worldview, that you sort of go into it and into it and into it, and you do end up feeling like his protagonists who are constantly having the world pulled out from underneath them. Mm. Mm. The, the MacGuffin was such an important part of, of his films, it, which is interesting because the MacGuffins themselves were never important. The formula in Torn Curtain, yeah. the microfilm yeah. in North by Northwest, none of those things were important, and it was always about the chase. And he told this story explaining the MacGuffin, saying... There are two men sitting on a train going to Scotland, and one man says to the other, Excuse me, sir, but what is that strange parcel you have on the luggage rack above you? Oh, says the other, that's a MacGuffin. Well, says the first man, what's a MacGuffin? (laughs) The other answers, it's an apparatus for trapping lions in the Scottish Highlands. But, says the first man, there are no lions in the Scottish Highlands. Well, says the other, then that's no MacGuffin. And, like, that makes about (laughs) as much sense as the aristocrats, but I still kind of love it. I love it. I love the whole dear, whole idea about the MacGuffin. Um, and again, that's something that's so influential and something that we see time and time again now in movies too. The idea that what, yeah, they're actually like North by Northwest being a great example. Uh, it's not important what the thing is. It's all about driving the story forward. And that was so clever. Absolutely. I'm just thinking about that joke. And, and Hitchcock's love of trains. <laughs> yes. That's part of what it makes me <laughs> think about is... You know, if he could get a train into a film uh, and he, you know, repeats the great train joke from 39 Steps in in North by Northwest, obviously Strangers on a Train, this idea of people who are out of place um, and Mm -hmm. in motion, it's very cinematic, but Mm. it's also very psychologically acute, um, the person who's out of place in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. And I wonder if that's another reason that he is Mr. Cinema is, you know, the train and and film have such a strong relationship to each other. And he's one of the great train directors to see that potential for how we travel as modern people and how that is often going to put us in a situation where we're compromised or we might pretend to be someone else or we might be in danger of being asked to pretend to be someone else or murder someone else's mother, which, you know, (laughs) happens to me every time I take a train. Um, These these strange spaces where... I just think like the beginning of North by Northwest, you step through a door and on one side of the door, you're someone and on the other side of the door, you're someone else. Like that Mm. is, that is a really deep primal fear, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And then when you think about the train and if you're on the train with someone that you definitely don't want to be on with, you know, and this is a moving thing, you can't get off the train. And that just adds to that layer of claustrophobia and terror, uh, which is something that Hitchcock did so well with so many of his films. Mm. Absolutely. I'm now starting to wonder, with the combination of Snowden and Hitchcock, if I even know who you are or who <laughs> might be listening in on this, like maybe we should just delete this whole podcast or put it on a memory stick and hide it in Mount Rushmore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, brilliant. Well, oh God, we, yeah, as we keep saying, we could keep going for hours and hours, but... 
I mean, what a filmmaker and what a filmography. And Alicia, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much. Would you believe I'm still driving? That's how long everything takes in LA. Um, but thank you so much for letting me geek out about Alfred Hitchcock and be part of your show. It was so much fun to talk to you both. Pleasure. It was it, it was wonderful. And from Alicia in the land of Psycho and Sophie in the land of the 39 <laughs> Steps and me in the land of Under Capricorn, uh, we will see the rest of you in a few minutes. Wait just a second because we're not done yet. This past July, director Terence Davies flew to Australia for the Melbourne International Film Festival premiere of his new film, Sunset Song. Davies is the legendary filmmaker behind such works as Distant Voices, Still Lives, The House of Mirth, Of Time and City, and The Deep Blue Sea. And that's the drama with Tom Hiddleston and Rachel Weisz, not the Samuel L. Jackson shark movie. And he was kind enough to grant us a few minutes to talk about the three Alfred Hitchcock films that he loves the most. Sunset Song is on general release in Australian cinemas now, and special thanks to the Melbourne International Film Festival, to Asha Holmes, and to Francis Mariani for their generosity in making this happen. All right, Terence, thank you so much for joining us. You cited your three favourite Hitchcock films as Psycho, Marnie, and Shadow of a Doubt. Now, with a filmography that includes... Uh, oft-cited films such as Vertigo and Rear Window and, and Rebecca. I was wondering why these three films? Well, um, when I was growing up, uh, uh, even as late as 1960, um, we, there were no art cinemas in Liverpool. You know? I mean, so you, you only went and saw the films that you, were on the local cinema. Um, and in 1960, so I knew nothing about him at all. Um, no, because you, as I say, you couldn't get old films, as they were called then, and I went to see Psycho, um, which I think is his greatest masterpiece. Um, I was petrified coming up. I was so frightened. Because, of course, it's, not about, it's got nothing to do with murder. What it's about is the, the, um, the randomness of madness. That's what it's really about. And what he does in it, um, I didn't realise this until many years later, is that he changes point of view eight times and you... Don't even notice. That's real. I think it's his greatest work. Um, so that's when I've discovered him as a name. Um, and then once they started putting his films on television, and you could see them then. Um, that's the only way you could see them in Liverpool. I mean, there was no, I say no arts cinema. Um, and then discovered, you know, Shadow of a Doubt, which was one on a, a, a Sunday afternoon on BBC One. I mean, very, very powerful. And Marnie, the same. Um, which has the most gorgeous colour. The colour is so beautiful and soft. It's all, then The only thing that spoils it is that awful ship at the end of the street. I mean, it looks dreadful. Why he didn't redo it, God alone knows. Um, but it, those three, for me, are just the greatest. And the greatest of all is Psycho. Well, I noticed the common thread uh, between the three is the idea of someone who has stolen riches and then we follow the thief after the fact. I wonder, is there, is there something deep within you? Is there something in your subconscious that, uh, that is attracted to the idea of a thief on the run? Oh, gosh, no. No, I, I mean, um, I, 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 for me, it, it's not about that. It, it's about the random nature of life in the broadest sense. You know, and how do we know someone? We don't, really. We can never know 
other people any more than we can know ourselves. I mean, we, it's just unknowable. Um, but when those um, things are, are collided with one another, then it becomes interesting. That's drama. You know, one person doesn't understand the other. Why? And it's a very simple idea. You know, it's really, there's only two ways to tell a story anyway. You know, either you start um, with a murder and then you go find out who did it, or you go along the line to get to the murders, only two ways of telling any story. But what's, what's interesting is that the way in which he treats Marnie, sort of anthropologically, and there's something sinister about that. I mean, why does he do it? And he clearly didn't love his first wife. I mean, it's made explicit that he didn't. You know, and he goes after her in an almost scientific way, I'll, st I'll study this strange creature. And, and of course, she's the reverse of that. She's all emotion and nothing but, but she, she controls it, you know, with every fibre of her being. She resists it. Um, and the greatest line, I think, is when they're on the line, she says, oh, I get it. <laughs> you Freud, me, Jane. I think it's a <laughs> wonderful line. <laughs> Well, speaking of, uh, if we can get a bit Freudian, uh, the, the names, uh, the naming conventions he uses. We have Marion Crane with uh, meeting someone obsessed with stuffing birds. Uh, we have, you know, Marnie's constantly shifting names in the film title picks one. I think it's very telling that it picks one. And in Shadow of a Dad, you're uh, talking of uh, you can't know other people. The protagonist and antagonist share the same name. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you think he's, he's doing with that? Well, uh, there's something... I don't know quite what he's doing with it, but there is something sinister about it. But the, what is even more sinister is the subplot of um, the man and the man next door who are always talking about how to kill someone. Mm. That's really... Th that, that becomes really unpleasant because what... what what they do, they make murder seem funny and trivial, and of course it's not. Um, and the most revealing bit is um, when he's at the table, he says, have you seen these fat women who have outlived their husbands? And um, Theresa Wright says, but they're human beings. And he says, are they? Really chilling. But I, I, I think perhaps, I, I don't know if this is true at all, it's just supposition, they're both got the same name, they're both seen in the same position in beds. Perhaps he's saying that they're the good and the bad in each of those people. And Theresa right, represents the good, Joseph Cotton, the bad. I don't know what he's doing there. Um, but he, he's, it's, never a, it's never about the, the surface story. Um, never. There's something unpleasant going on below the surface. What he's really saying, and if you look at um, that um, Santa Rosa where they live in Santa Rosa. See, it was still this fishing village then, and the whole um, village used to come out and watch them filming. Um, it's now been completely destroyed. That library is gone and all that. But it's... There's something below the... Especially when it's bathed in sunlight, and it looks idyllic. You'd love to live in Santa Rosa in that house. Of course you would. But beneath it is decay, and there's death. And something more sinister than death, um, a cynical attitude on the part of Joseph Cotton, of how much he hates women. 
and those those are the disturbing things I think um, but to set it bathed in sunlight when it would have been so easy to make it very dark which would have been really uninteresting <laughs> Well, so much is made of Hitchcock's attitude to women, the, uh, you know, the, the debate about whether he loves them, admires them, dislikes them, you know, so much about the Hitchcock icy blonde. I noticed that uh, we follow the thief in Psycho, who is a woman, she is our main character. The thief in Marnie is a woman, and she's the main character. In Shadow of a Doubt, the thief is a man, and, we're, and we sympathise with the woman. Um, how do you feel uh, he viewed women and, and whether he related to them or was observing them as sort of uh, this other? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, really, the only person who can tell you that is Hitchcock. Body. But, I mean, I, I, I think a lot... I think too much is made of um, his attitude to women. Certainly, I think his... Um, he could be very cruel, you know. I mean, the... the, the the birds, he was very cruel um, to Tip Hedron and wouldn't let her do anything else because um, he'd signed her to a contract. There's something. But that, I'd, I don't think it's because she's a woman. I just think it's because he had a certain, certain powers and would use them. And that's despicable. It's very hard to like that side of him. And because one inevitably feels that with a great artist, and I think he is a great artist, you expect them to be more honourable than that. You know, um... And he wasn't. Um, and there's something you think, like, it's like Sinatra, you know, I mean, he, the great vocalist of um, the 20th century, particularly the uh, time he was recording with Capitol, horrible man, and to get to the point where you think you almost cannot listen to the recording because you know how horrible he was. And that does change it. And I'm sure there were all sorts of things going on at the time. Um, that we'll never know about. Um, I, I just think too much is made of it. Because um, it's easy to psychoanalyze somebody else. It's like dead easy. We can all do that. But I, I don't think it's as simple as that. And, and that's why the films are so complicated. And, and I don't mean that in a derogatory, but complex, perhaps I should have said. Um, that he, but he does know about human nature. And he doesn't pull his punches about human nature. Um, and in that sense, he's really honest. I mean, that close-up of um, the, the the picture that the mother's painting in um, Strangers, Strangers on a Train. She said, it looks like dead shit. It's supposed to be Frank of Assisi. <laughs> <laughs> Hitchcock is arguably, arguably the first director who made directors into superstars. He was the first, uh, certainly made the public conscious of them. Uh, growing up, I knew his name before I knew the name of you know, the Prime Minister. Um, what is it about uh, his work that, do you think, uh, made him uh, this, this sort of uh, icon and made directing sexy? Well, I mean, it's his vision. Um, like any great artist, he's got a vision. You know, I mean, and it can be incredibly erotic and romantic. I mean, that track with um, Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant in Notorious to the Door. I mean, that's pure eroticism. You understand the nature of love. But, of course, below that, there's this implication that's like she's a woman of easy virtue. And, unfortunately, you don't believe that with Ingrid Bergman. I don't care... What she did, I think, no, she's as pure as the driven snow, because I think she's so beautiful. But he, what he does is he just implies there's something below the surface that cannot be controlled. Um, and I think that's 
that, that may be what frightened him, that you can't control it, because we can't control things. You know, this nonsense about we can take control of our lives. What a load of twaddle. Of course we can't. Um, but he can be, also he can be extremely romantic. You know, the, the house in Rebecca is pure romance. Nobody has lived in a house like that. Um, I, I, and again, you know, um, this sinister quality that lies just below the surface. When Mrs. Daniels says she didn't have it, why don't you, why don't you go, why don't you jump? And it's, it's like a love scene, really frightening. Um, and that's what, that's what I love about him is, is, in the end, the best of the films are honest. I mean, and he made some real, real dreadful films. I mean, try and sit through topaz and remain conscious. I have attempted that. <laughs> oh, God, it's truly awful. It's truly awful. And the trouble with Harry, you think, oh, God, it's absolutely dead, <laughs> if you'll forgive the pot. <laughs> uh, what, have, you, have you taken any inspiration from him in your own work? Is there any, um, I mean, consciously, because subconsciously you can never know, consciously, is there anything that he has done that you have tried to emulate in your films? No, because I don't think you can emulate someone that you really love. You know, I think at his best, he really is a fantastic... But also, well, one shouldn't forget that he was had a very good sense of humour. You know, did you ever see the TV series that he used to have? Yes. Always introduced in the loveliest, lightest touch. You think, why didn't you do a really good comedy? Um, because he had, he, he knew about comedy, knew how to make you laugh, and and it is very, and he's very beguiling, very beguiling indeed. Um, but I do think there's, with with any great artist, there's more to life. There's more to it than meets the eye. Um, certainly um, in Psycho. I mean, but one also must say that without the Bernard Hepburn score, it wouldn't be half as good. Because it, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. There's, from those opening credits, which are by Saul Bass and wonderful, that constant motto perpetuo. And by the time it finishes, you're on edge. And yet he, the next shot is this lazy pan in the sun over Phoenix and they're in bed after sex I mean it's an extraordinary juxtaposition yeah the, his use of sound is extraordinary and how he he could use that uh, moment in Psycho and, and drive home what would uh, remind the audience that they're listening to music and be so uh, clear about that whereas in something like Torn Curtain he will play a scene completely silently he was he was a master of, of, of the elements as well, uh, of, of, of sound design, of, of shot design. And is there anything in, in him reminding the audience that they're watching a film that sort of put him front and centre? Um, uh, that I don't know. Um, but you know you're watching an Alfred Hitchcock film. You just know um, because of the way in which he shot it. You know? And, and the, the, the strangeness of the performance. Like, for instance, um, The Birds, I think, is just silly. Um, but it's got the most wonderful performance by um, Jessica Tandy. Next time you watch it, it is the most peculiar relationship between her mother and her son. It's very peculiar, and her attitude towards Tippi Hedron. I mean, it, that is the great performance in that in that film. It's a remarkable performance because you you never you're never sure what she means. You know, and uh, uh, referring to. Um, the dead father, and she just looks at Tippi Hedron, and and it's not hostility, but there's something strange about it. It's a great, great performance in what I think is a pretty silly film. 
Well, on that note, Terence, thank you so much for joining us. You're more than welcome. <laughs>